Uh, we're just going to have our reading now from uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through to 11. Uh, it should be appearing on the screen behind me. Um, so Philippians chapter 2, uh, one, verse 1 down to 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to, to Jonathan's. My name is, is Johnny. I'm the, the pastor and part of the leadership team here at Hebron. And it is great to see you all. And a particularly warm welcome. I think there are quite a number of folks visiting, whether for the holiday weekend um, or just arrived in the city not too long ago. You're very, very welcome amongst us. It's really great to have you here. And we're going to spend, as Jonathan mentioned, a few minutes together uh, thinking about the passage he's just read, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And I always say this on a Sunday morning. It would be helpful, I think, to you as much as to me, if you have a copy of that in front of you, um, to have that open, that'd be great, and just to follow along and make sure that what I'm saying um, aren't my thoughts, um, but are what the God of the universe has said to us. So if you can have Philippians chapter 2 open, please do um, over the next few minutes. And before we spend some time thinking about those verses together, though, let's ask God for his help uh, this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself to us through your written word, the Bible. And we ask now that as we spend time thinking on that word together, you'd please give us a clearer view of your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would love him more and yearn to be more like him. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, teamwork can be quite a challenging thing, can't it? I guess all of us will have experienced that in one way or another. You might have experienced it in an office or a workplace setting where you were all meant to be working towards the same goal, but with so many different personalities and so many different opinions in the room, somehow always seem to be working at cross-purposes. Or perhaps as part of an actual team, a sports team, where two people in the team want to do things their way and everyone else ends up being collateral. 
I remember experiencing it at university myself. We were all tasked with producing a group presentation, which I can almost sense the tension in the room as you hear those two words together, group and presentation, with about two or three days to go before our presentation. Everyone in my group had stopped speaking to one another, which meant that the presentation itself ended up being a bit of a magical mystery tour. No one was really sure what the next person was actually going to say. And if you aren't convinced that working as a team can be hard going, well, We ought really to have a moment's silence to remember the many millions of people each year sent on corporate team-building days, spending hours trying to solve puzzles and complete tasks, and basically not to cause serious harm to one another, all in order to grow your effectiveness as a team. Why? Well, because teamwork can be difficult. And that difficulty is something that the Apostle Paul knew all too well. We are four weeks into this series in the letter to the church in Philippi, and we've seen that the man who wrote the letter, Paul, he thought the church there were doing a really good job. And he thought they were doing a particularly good job of working together as a team, side by side as partners in the work of telling other people the good news about Jesus. And so a key reason Paul writes this whole letter is to encourage them to keep going, to keep doing what they're doing. But one of the big questions that has raised, even in the three or so weeks we've thought on Philippians so far, is how? How are they to keep pressing on in partnership with one another? Not least because although they were doing well in lots of ways, well, they weren't perfect, and we'll see that, actually, in the weeks to come. There were, there were fault lines in the church family. There were disagreements between members that were significant enough for Paul to call them out by name. So how do they make sure that those fault lines don't turn into cracks and eventually the team start to drift apart? Well, cue Philippians chapter 2. Because in Philippians 2, Paul tells this local church how to split-proof their partnership with one another. They can do that, says Paul, can protect themselves from, from coming apart at the seams by changing their minds. What do I mean? Well, look with me again at verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes this, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Read on to verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The big outbox, the big application of these verses is the Philippians' minds. To keep going and to keep growing in gospel partnership with one another, Paul wants the Philippian church to share in the same humble, other-person-centered mindset towards one another. Now, I should apologize for mentioning staff away days a moment or two ago. I'm sure that had some of you breaking out in a cold sweat. But there is a reason that those days happen, as the HR managers in the room today know all too well. Because if all it took was to work as a team was to be told, you should work as a team... Well, there'd be no need to spend a day at a high ropes course or orienteering in the rain together, would there? But it often takes more than that to affect real change in people, doesn't it? We don't just need to be told to work together. 
we often need to be shown why. And that's actually how Philippians chapter 2 works. You see, the key command, the main imperative, comes in verses 2 to 4, be of one humble, other person-centered mind. But in the rest of the unit, in verse 1 and verses 5 to 11, Paul shows them why. Why they should be of one mind. He gives us three main reasons, and we're going to just walk our way through each of those in the time we have together this morning. Let's think on the first of those. Be of one humble mind because of the privileges that are yours in Jesus. Now, you might have noticed that Paul starts this this chapter, this little unit, by drawing together a list. A list of, of some of the benefits of being a Christian. Just read with me chapter 2, verse 1 again. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Paul outlines four huge privileges of being a Christian. Firstly, notice any encouragement in Christ. Now, uh, you may or may not be aware that the Bible very rarely uses the word Christian to describe God's people. The word is used, but nowhere near as often as you might think. Instead, to talk about God's people, the phrase that's very often used is that God's people are people who are in Christ or who are united to Jesus. And that is the phrase that Paul uses here at the beginning of of chapter 2. He's reminding the Philippians that as believers in Jesus, they've been united to him. And that, says Paul, is an encouraging thing. It means that just as Jesus rose from the dead, so they too have been raised with him to new life. It means that they are spiritually secure because their lives are hidden with Christ, untouchable in that sense. That's the first benefit he highlights, being united to Jesus. He continues, verse 1, any comfort from love. The story of, of God's dealings with his people is very much a story of love, of extraordinary love from God towards us. That though none of us love him as we ought, he has loved us still sending his own son to bear the judgment we deserve on his own shoulders, as we've already thought on at communion together this morning. He carries on to a third benefit, verse 1, any participation in the Spirit, by which he means the Holy Spirit. And again, this is an extraordinary privilege of being a Christian, that when we come to faith in Jesus, God himself takes up residence within us, lives inside of us by his Holy Spirit, who helps us, and guides us, and comforts us. And finally, any affection and sympathy, by which I think he means if you've experienced any affection and sympathy from God, which again, if you're a Christian, you have. You have in abundance. Jesus has set his love, his affections on you. And to take all of that together, well, it's like reading a pretty succinct Google review of what it's like to be a Christian. And it is a five-star review. If you're his, if you have trusted in Jesus, then all of this is yours. All of this richness and goodness is yours. But 
Uh, we've already seen uh, this morning that the main command, the main imperative in this unit is humility. This whole unit is, is a call to share in Jesus' humble mindset. So, so what is verse 1? What do these benefits of being a Christian have to do with humility? How do they help us to put other people first? Well, if I were to say to you the name Veruca Salt, would you know who I was talking about? Nods from a couple of you, some slightly vacant looks from others, that's okay. Uh, Veruca Salt isn't a treatment for a foot condition. She is a character in a children's book, a book called Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And she is a piece of work. She demands everything she wants, And she wants everything she sees, even if she already has it. So to make that point, we're told in the book that she owns two dogs, four cats, six rabbits, two parakeets, three canaries, a parrot, a turtle, and a hamster. She saw them, she wanted them, and she made her parents get them. But each time she asks for something, at least in the film adaptations of the book, you get to see a a slight sort of flicker in the eyes of her long-suffering dad. And he'll say something like, but Veruca, you already have two of those. Why on earth would you want another one? And I do wonder if Paul's doing something similar in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. He's reminding the Philippians of the immense privileges that they already have as Christians. Why? Well, so they don't go chasing satisfaction or fulfillment in something else. Let me show you what I mean. Paul identifies one really big stumbling block to humility in Philippians chapter 2. I wonder if you noticed that. He says to the Philippians, they should be of one mind. Verse 3, should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit using a local church to further your own interests, whether through acquiring power or or notoriety or spiritual kudos. And that isn't at all unusual. I think of a a church down south, of, of which I know, which was planted some years ago, has established itself in the community in which it sits, but in which one of the leadership team, who's been there from the very start, very often reminds others that he's, he was part of the launch team. And this church is really his baby, part of his legacy. And I wonder if you can see the effect that would have on gospel partnership. The strategy of the, of the church as a whole is not side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's fall in line behind me for the progress of my own legacy. Can you see how that selfish ambition would choke life out of gospel partnership in that local church family. But in Philippians 2, Paul's saying that the privileges of being a Christian, it ought to completely undermine that kind of selfish ambition. It's a bit like Veruca Salt's dad saying, why on earth would you want a poxy legacy for yourself when you already have all of this? Knowing that you're united to Jesus and utterly safe in him, Why would you want to to, to chase your own advancement in a local church? Knowing that you've been loved beyond measure by the God of the universe, why would you go trying to prove yourself to anyone? Knowing that the Holy Spirit, God himself, lives within you, goodness, why would you want to, to, to build a legacy for yourself? 
And I wonder if that's where this might bite for for some of us. If we do ever feel flashes of self-interest creeping into our own minds, whether in relationships with Christians here in the Hebron church family or, or Christians elsewhere, if you feel perhaps a rivalry between the ministry you're involved in and another person's ministry, and you would love nothing more than for your ministry to completely outstrip theirs. Perhaps you're part of a, a Christian union in the city and you wish that you were in a leadership position instead of someone else because you know that person is far less deserving than you and you'd do a far better job than they would. Paul's reminding you of what you already have, of the love, the security, the affection, the sympathy that are already yours in Jesus. Why would you want to go chasing notoriety or status or legacy and another Christian's expense when you've already got so much in Christ? That's our first point this morning. Be of one humble mind because of the privileges that are yours in Jesus. But that isn't the only reason Paul thinks we are to be of one mind if we are Christians, that we already have so much. The second reason is that if we are following Jesus, then we're following the most humble man who ever lived. And that's our second point this morning. Be of one humble mind because we follow one who humbled himself. Verses 5 to 8. Now, sometimes grand acts of humility can be really quite heartwarming. Some of you might remember, for example, that in 2015, President Barack Obama was joined by the entire First Family to serve Thanksgiving dinner to the local homeless population at a community center in Washington, D.C., and that people went wild over it over quite how selfless it was for the president, the president of the United States, to serve dinner to people who were at the opposite end of the social spectrum from him. Grand acts of humility like that can be really heartwarming. At least up to a certain point. After a certain point, though, humility can turn into quite a shocking thing. Imagine if, rather than just serving dinner, for example... President Biden decided to become an actual servant. That when people arrived at the White House, he was the one standing at the door to take their coats from them. Took their bags to their rooms. He served them dinner just like Obama did, but he waited by the table in case they needed anything else. He waited on people hand and foot. Someone who's who's quite so powerful, being quite that humble, well, it wouldn't really be heartwarming as much as it would be quite awkward perhaps even a bit embarrassing. And that is, in a very, very weak sense, a picture of the extraordinary humility described for us in verses 6 to 8. Not from the president of a nation state like the US, but from the God of all creation. Just follow the trajectory that Paul maps out for us. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, when Paul says there that Jesus was in the form of God, he isn't saying that he just looked like a God. He's saying that he shared the same nature as him, enjoyed enjoyed genuine equality with God in who he was. And that's pretty much as high as it gets in terms of status, isn't it? Never mind being president of the United States. Jesus was equal with the God of the universe. 
And yet, says Paul, he didn't consider that equality with God as something to be grasped or or to be deployed for his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. And again, he isn't saying there that Jesus stopped being God when he became a human being. Not at all. What he's saying is that he divested himself of the privilege and the status that were his. Or in other words, he became a nobody. Took the form of a servant. Could equally be translated as a slave. Lived and acted and functioned as a slave. And that is just an extraordinary trajectory, isn't it? From the heights of heaven to the bottom of the food chain here on earth. And yet even then, the ark isn't quite at an end. Verse 8, he humbled himself even further, becoming obedient to death on a cross. Now, we might lose something of the shock of that idea, I think, or at least the shock that a Roman citizen living in Philippi would have felt at reading it for the first time. Because for us, a cross is quite a sanitized image in our culture. People wear metal crosses as jewelry. And they appear on on, on stained glass windows. But as Paul was writing this letter, a cross was anything but sanitized. I read someone this week who suggested that a modern-day equivalent of a cross might be something like a gas chamber. We feel uneasy just hearing those two words, don't we? Gas chamber. But that sense of unease is the kind of unease that a cross should carry with it. It is an instrument of horror, of torture, of darkness. Crucifixion was a horrific, horrific thing. And yet here Paul is saying that Jesus, this Jesus who belonged in the heights and the glories of heaven, came down and down and down and down. Now if you're here this morning and just looking into to Christian things perhaps, I wonder what you make of that. It's not at all unusual to be under the impression that the Christian God is a lot like the God of of every other world religion. Perhaps that we all really worship the same God, we just give him a different name. But can you see just how unique, how surprising, how attractive even this God, the God of the Bible, really is? Far mightier, far more powerful, more perfect even than anything of which we could conceive. And yet he reaches down. Down into the muck and the mire. All the way down to a cross. And why did he do that, says Paul? To serve. He served us by doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. By his humble obedience to his Father in heaven... He rescued people, people like us, from our repeated disobedience to that same Father in heaven. And he did that by dying on a cross. Now that is mind-bending stuff, I know, but it is true. And not only is it true, it is absolutely compelling. And I think if you give some thought to this Jesus, you will find him compelling too. So let me please encourage you to do that, to read what the Bible actually tells us about him. If you'd like some help with that, I would be absolutely over the moon to spend time thinking about who this Jesus is with you or ask the person who brought you along this morning. And if you are a Christian, 
there may well be a sense in which you almost just want to stand back and wonder at Philippians chapter 2. I heard a preacher not too long ago saying just that. He preached a sermon on Philippians chapter 2, and his application point was just to wonder at the awesome humility of Jesus. And I should say I have a lot of sympathy with that. The only problem, though, is that that isn't where Paul lands in Philippians 2. That isn't his main application. You see, Paul tells us about Jesus' extraordinary condescension, his coming down for a reason. Remember, he wants us to change our minds. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? Well, the mind of verses 6 to 8, this extraordinary humility. And so what he's saying, I think, is that as a Christian, you've been rescued by him, but so too are you a follower of this Jesus. He calls you to take up a cross in order to follow him. So will you not do likewise? Will you not lay aside any privilege, any rights you might have, trifling though they are compared to his, in order to serve, to serve other people, putting their interests first ahead of your own? And yet, even that isn't quite the full punchline of Paul's argument. Because yes, he wants us to see Jesus' humility really clearly. He wants us to copy that humility But there is one final flourish to convince us, really, to follow him. And that's our final point this morning. Be of one humble mind because God values humility so highly. Verses 9 to 11. Now, I came across an article a while ago in in Forbes magazine, which is a magazine about business and and technology and and leadership. And it's an article that really stuck with me, partly because it made me smile when I read it. The article was called 17 Reasons that humility will help you to get ahead. And the premise of the article was that being humble is really the best way to live because it will result in you getting your own way in the end. And one reason that article stuck with me is, well, because it made me laugh. Because it's the opposite rationale from the one that Paul gives for pursuing humility. Forbes are saying, be humble because that's how to advance your interests. Paul says, be humble, verse 4, not looking to your own interests. But actually, after a bit of time thinking on it this week, I don't think it'd be right to be too hard on the author of that article. Because Paul does say that humility means placing other people's interests first. But at the same time, he says that in the long run, it really is the way to get ahead. Just notice that with me. Jesus came from the glories of heaven to suffer ignominy here on earth, verses 6 to 8. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Can you see the logic? Jesus was mind-blowingly humble in obedience to his Father, and therefore, Paul says, therefore, because of that, his Father lifted him up. See, humility might not be the best way to get ahead in life. But for Jesus, at least, his obedient humility did ultimately result in glory and in honor. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that Paul's necessarily holding that out as a carrot to us in Philippians chapter 2. There's no mention in Philippians 2 that we'll get that same reward for being humble here. But what he is showing us 
is how God the Father felt about Jesus' humility. That's where the emphasis seems to lie in verse 9, doesn't it? With God's action, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. His point, I think, is here is how highly God values humility. Values it so much that just look at where Jesus is now. Not wallowing in shame and ignominy, but rejoicing in glory. Now again, that's pretty surprising, isn't it? That the God of all creation values humility quite that much. Not just excellence, as we might expect, or, or, or grand acts of bravery or courage, but humility. Putting other people first. That is a surprise. But again, I wonder if you can see how it helps with Paul's big goal this morning, that we would be, as Christians, of one mind, humbly serving one another. He's reminded us of what is ours if we're Christians, so we don't need to go chasing our own interests, not least in a local church. He's reminded us of the one that we are following if we're following Jesus, the most humble man who ever lived. And he finishes by reminding us of the topsy-turvy way God does things and sees things. What God really values, he values obedient humility, putting other people's interests ahead of our own. So, will we do what he says? As a church family, will we be in full accord and of one mind? Now, I often say this when speaking on a Sunday, but just to encourage you, I can think of Lots and lots and lots of ways in which this church family is of one mind. Lots of reasons to be encouraged by genuine acts of selfless and humble love across this church family. People giving their time and their energies and their resources to quietly serving other people and not making a big deal of it. Whether with lifts to hospital appointments or with visits or with meals delivered to those who are having a hard time. But you see, the thing is, the same could probably have been said of the Philippians. Because they were doing really well. Remember, Paul thought they were doing great. And yet still he thought they needed this encouragement to keep going, to keep pressing on. So will we do likewise, comes the question. And yet we can't quite leave things there. Because Philippians 2 isn't an isolated passage, is it? It's located in a letter. A letter in which the big message has been to be partners together in the gospel, to strive side by side to tell other people the good news about Jesus. And that gives us one other reason for Philippians 2 really, really mattering for us as a church family. I heard not too long ago about a church in another part of the country which will remain nameless where two individuals had differing views in who should be calling the shots when it came to strategy and direction. Both were unwilling to see the virtues of the other's view, and both, as often happens, lined up followers behind them. And things quickly got very messy indeed. Towards the end, Sunday morning services were like a gathering of the sharks and the jets, each sitting on either side of the church building and refusing to speak to one another. And in the end, a big group of them left, and that was a very sad and difficult thing. But during the time that that fight was happening... Apart from the sadness and the hurt that it all caused, bad enough in itself, just think of that church's effectiveness as gospel partners. 
Think on how well they were doing with standing side by side, holding the good news of Jesus out to their local community. That wasn't really happening at all. Because selfish ambition and conceit, well, it was killing gospel partnership dead. Now, the answer to a problem like that isn't that that Christians have to think exactly the same thing. Being of, of one mind doesn't mean that Christians can never disagree with one another, not at all. But at the very least, being of one mind means that appreciating that taking the good news of Jesus out there is so very important. And that my own advancement and that my own interests are not. They just aren't. Hebron, we have the most wonderful news to tell people of the king of all creation stepping into that creation from the the highest of heights to the depths of crucifixion to rescue people like us, to unite us to himself because he loves us. And he tells us to go and tell people that good news. How are we to do it, he says? Together. Side by side. Now, by definition, none of us can make that happen by ourselves. But what we can do is commit ourselves to servant-hearted, Jesus-like humility towards one another. And so as we close, I'm going to ask God for his help to do that more and more as a church family in all the days ahead. For our joy, for Aberdeen's good, and for God's glory. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for your kindness to us in Jesus. That in your love, you would send your only Son from the heights and glories of heaven to suffer ignominy, torture, and death. And would do that to make it possible for people like us, undeserving though we are, to be united to him, both now and into eternity. It is just wonderful news. Father, we pray that anyone here who's hearing that news for the first time, or perhaps hearing it fresh, would come to believe it and hold it to be the most wonderful news for themselves. And we ask that for those of us who have already embraced it, would you please help us to go forth and tell, not alone, but as partners, humble, Jesus-like partners in the gospel. We ask all of this in the name of the right and good and gracious King, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.